0: Good afternoon and welcome to WEHC 90.7 and you just tuned in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock, and we're so glad that you're with us today. Um, Carly I think I'm going to lead us in this uh, but do you want to say hi or your usual because you usually lead us. (laughs) You should have flipped it around you should have welcomed everybody. (laughs) I should have yeah.
1: Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, Happy for you all to be with us today. We are starting a new article. Um, Sharon, I can go ahead and introduce the article if you'd like. Okay, great. Great. Um, So this article was brought to us to discuss um, by Sharon, who's read this article, and it's just incredible. And there's a lot of rich things for us to discuss in here. Um, It is called Healing the Hidden Wounds of Racial Trauma by Kenneth V. Hardy. Um, And Sharon, you know a little bit more about Kenneth Hardy. Will you Tell us a little bit about him.
0: Well, I was just going to look real quick. I think he's a psychologist and I think he may even be a child psychologist because originally this article was written about youth and young black youth and what they were experiencing. And, um, he he's well-traveled. He's written some books. He's got some podcasts, you know, all of those kinds of things as a famous, uh, I think psychologist is what, what, what is bill. He's got a PhD in the, in the area. And, um, just overall, I think he's appeared on maybe Oprah Winfrey and some of those kinds of things. So he's pretty, pretty well versed in, 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 in this whole issue of healing the hidden wounds of racial trauma. I mean, he's got videos out and several books. He's written several books and primarily he writes about it's family therapy and it's, quote unquote, minorities or youth and from their perspective. But when I read this article, Carly, and some of the things that we've been talking about from a black woman's perspective and an intersectional feminist perspective, and it just resonated that some of these things are uh, our experiences, uh, women in in particular, but black women and other women of color. So not just youth. So I thought it might be good if we if we kind of talked about you know, some of the failures or perceived failures that women experience and see if we could filter it through some of these things that he says about youth and in particular young Black youth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, This article is actually published in uh, reclaimingjournal.com, which um, is the Reclaiming Children and Youth Journal. So it is definitely focused more towards children and young people, but definitely something that we can dive into.
0: Yeah. And I think he's a family psychotherapist or something he he calls himself. But as I said, you know, the issue for us or the connection for us is this whole thing about racial oppression and how it is internalized and how it just wounds the soul and how we just need care for that. And I I think sometimes, Carly, people, you know, people who say like, uh, enough already, can not we just leave this alone? Or why are we talking about this and all that? They're talking about it from a hegemonic academic perspective. They're not necessarily talking about how it affects your psyche and mm. who you are. And so for women and in particular, black and brown women, the scars run really deep when you start trying to process what is going on. And, and when we, I, I think we'll talk, we can talk about, Race-related trauma and the wounds from that, and then if we if we get to the place where we talk about internalized devaluation, I think that's the one where where it hit me. It resonated so much with me because um, I, I think we just have to get to a place where we have to see how this, how race and who we are, is meshed together so much because people won't let you just be, somebody said, oh, well, you just be a woman. Well, I can't be a woman. Cause every time you see me, you see me as a black woman with mm-hmm. all of the things that go to it. Just like when they see you, they see you as a white woman with all of the trappings, all of the accoutrements mm-hmm. that go with that. So you, you can't just say, just, just let's not talk about it because you really and truly have to talk about it.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I love, um, so the, the first section of this article is titled Race-Related Trauma Wounds. And one of the things it says here is, as with other forms of trauma, we ask the wrong questions about struggling youth of color. Instead of asking what is wrong with them, we need to ask trauma-informed questions like what has happened to them? And I think that shift in perspective, whether we're talking about you know youth of color or we're talking about anybody else, is so important. And you even say this all the time, you know, if you knew my history or my history, you treat me differently. That's exactly what that question is saying. What has happened to this person? Because, you know, this isn't, this didn't happen in a bubble, right?
0: (laughs) Uh, I was going to say that Oprah Winfrey has, uh, and somebody else, I think his name was Bruce Perry or somebody, but they wrote a book and the book is actually what happened to you. And so they talk about overall trauma and they say, instead of asking people, uh you know that question what's wrong with you or why are you doing what you're doing or why do you act like that you know the question that we need to ask is what happened to you and even especially in you know trauma that's either uh sexualized trauma or racial trauma or any of those things real things that happened to people that they've never forgotten mm-hmm. and so they're operating with those wounds from that trauma and 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 I think it's critical uh that we talk a little bit about that because it it it's Uh, you know, I think this article says it as well, it says it's mostly invisible. And that's why sometimes you have to ask people what happened to them so um, so that they'll understand and that they'll know, because you can't see it. Like when you look at me or when I look at you, we don't know what we've been through. And I do say that all the time. If you knew my history or my history, you treat me differently because I've been through some stuff. You've been through some stuff. We're going through some stuff. People are going through some stuff. And when it's exacerbated by racial oppression, it's the work of the worst kind because you're always in a dominant subordinate relationship. You mm-hmm. never are, especially in America where enslavement has been so cruel, you never break out of that and you see yourself as equal. You always see that there's a little something wrong with you, that you have a mark. I think it's Ibram X. Kendi, and somebody else wrote that book with him, but it's called Stamped. And it just talks about from the beginning, you've got that mark on you and you never get rid of it. And so you carry it and it just creates all of this kind of like hidden trauma that nobody really sees. Yeah, Stamped from the Beginning is
1: actually available in audio form on uh, Spotify. So if anybody has Spotify, I definitely recommend listening to it it is intense i have to pause a lot and think yeah <laughs> but it's definitely worth um worth spending some time with um yeah i mean exactly what you're saying this article um says that one of the problems with with therapy when it comes to dealing with um youth of color in the article but just you know people of color in general is that people you know tend to approach it with like individual individual psychological issues behavioral problems affected disorders family problems, you know, like through the lens of psychology without taking into account that if you're dealing with a person of color, they also have these, these wounds within them from racial violence. And you cannot treat that person without
0: understanding that as well. Yeah. And, and I think often what happens is, you know, with psychotherapy and other, other hegemonic academic disciplines, we have a tendency to look at it from a white person's lens. Without even considering what it looks like to be black or brown, you know, uh, or uh, you know, we don't like to use the word yellow; it's condescending. But I did read a book recently, and it was called "The Souls of Yellow Folk," and it was based on Asian American, you know, because it it it, t- it took it from W. E. B. Du Bois' book "The Souls of Black Folk," and I think if you're ever going to do any work with race. Uh, any work with diversity, any work with inclusion, belonging, any of that, you you really need the primer for all of what we're talking about now, critical race theory, all of those things, the primer for what we're talking about is rooted in W.E.B. Du Bois, the souls of Black consciousness. I mean, and uh, so if you read that, then you're light years ahead of many people who are just coming <laughs> to the game because he talked about it years ago, you know, about that double consciousness that that was a part of You know, how black people interacting in a predominantly white world have to operate. And anyway, but there's there is a book out called uh, The Souls of Yellow Folk. And uh, so when we say red, black, brown, white, yellow, you know, we're not saying it in a condescending way because there are some people who are owning it and owning it in a positive and affirming way. Uh, so I said all that to, to, that was a long story to get a plug in for my most recent book that I read, but, um, instead of assuming we know everything about them, what if we did ask that, that, that very hair splitting question, what has happened to you?
1: Yeah. And I think it's the job of people who are psychotherapists or, you know, working in any sort of mental health, physical health, you know, self-development, um, DEI spaces, to ask, to make sure that they are going into it, asking those questions and to also educate themselves because there are a lot of experiences that are not universal, I would say, but there are certain experiences that, you know, this experience of racism is going to permeate everything. Right. And so it's important to go into it already having, you know, some understanding of that. Um, When I was getting my social work degree, we called it cultural competence, but they don't call it that anymore. It's Mm not called cultural Mm -hmm. humility. Because there is no such thing as cultural competence for a culture that is not your own, right? Yes, uh, yes. you're always learning. You're always, you know, there's always going to be things that you don't understand that you don't, you know, know because you're not living that um, experience. So, um, but yeah, coming to it with some cultural humility.
0: Recently, Carly, I, I wanted us to talk about this maybe on on our next couple of shows, but uh, I I went to this uh, workshop, and it was about. Um, it was powerful. And I'll I'll send you the link so that you can look at it before we actually talk about it on our show. Mm -hmm. But it was about um, white allyship. And they said some of the most amazing things in there. Like one thing they said that stuck with me, and I'm thinking about it as we're talking about this, they said that if you really are an ally and want to be called an ally and want to be called an ally by those that you are coming alongside, the first thing that you have to do when you go into it, you have to go into it knowing that it's going to cause you some pain. And Mm -hmm. I thought, wow. I mean, we need to include that in our training that we do with allyship because people always want to say they're an ally, but they're an ally when it's convenient. And yes. if they're part of the privileged class, then they can check out at any time and come back in. But if you go in with it, knowing that you're in it for the long haul and knowing that it's going to cause you some pain, then you you might very well merit being called an ally. I, I saw another quote recently, very similar to the one you just shared, which is
1: that you know, allyship is not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be comfortable, right? Yeah. It's supposed to be challenging. It's supposed to be hard. And if you are finding yourself calling yourself an ally or saying, you know, I'm an ally to this particular group, but it feels easy for you, you don't feel challenged by that at all, you know, then I think it's time to maybe look at your allyship and see like. Maybe internally I consider myself to be an ally, but am I actually practicing that in, yeah. in real life? Yeah. You know.
0: I guess for this first part, Carly, when we're talking about this racial race-related trauma, I, I liked one of the comments. I guess it's a quote from Hardy where he says that racial oppression is a traumatic form of interpersonal violence, which can lacerate spirit, scar the soil, the soul, and puncture the psyche.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Doesn't that I mean if we just took a few minutes like what would that look like? It's interpersonal violence. You know, mm-hmm. so I talk all the time about the white gaze and some people get mad at me. One of my parishioners got mad at me. She said, I, I, I can't believe that you I had to look up what white gaze is. And, and I can't believe that you don't like white people. And she has not been back to the church. She has not been back to my, my church is all white. I'm the only black person in my churches. And she put that on Facebook. And I just sent back and said, that is so not true. And I started to tell her the proverbial, some of my best friends are white. (laughs) But I I thought that would just be inciting her and it wouldn't wouldn't help. But she actually said that when she saw, when she looked up the definition of white gaze. and, And one of the things that I was talking about, I talk, I add to it and I call, from my philosophical perspective, the tyranny of the white gaze, because there's violence that's at- attached to it. And here, yes. Dr. Hardy is saying it's interpersonal violence. And we don't like to, to believe that. And, and that it has to be, some violence has to be attached to it in order for it to cause trauma. Absolutely.
1: And I think we also, just from my my own personal experiences too, there is this misconception that violence has to always be physical um mm-hmm. and you know that is something that i think a lot of people especially under patriarchy still believe right is like violence when we hear that word we're we're specifically talking about physical acts against another person and that is not true at all right systems can be violent um words can be violent um actions that are not physical against another human can be violent and Yes. Racism, racial oppression is violence. It is absolutely violence, whether that is one person, like two people, one is is racist and the other person's experiencing that racism, or it is a system, right? Um, That is violence.
0: Yes. And, and the, the whole interpersonal piece, you know, like people try to act like, uh, I was thinking when you were talking about the age old adage, you know, where people say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Mm-hmm. And we know that's the lie from the pit of hell. <laughs> let me stop. Y'all are seeing my my Christian way here. Let me, let, let me recant that. But it's a big, bad lie, you know, yeah. that says that words don't hurt. Words hurt tremendously. You know, and that's that interpersonal violence. I can remember, and I don't know if you can, Carly, but from a race perspective, I can remember, and I guess I should own it and call it trauma, but I can remember just like I could recant instant after instance after instance of people who traumatized me and that they never laid a hand on me. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, That yeah. it was what they said or the name that they called me or the slight that they gave me or push back or you're not welcome here or your kind of people or rubbing my arm and saying, is that dirt? Is that going to come off, you know, in a joking kind of way? But I never forget that. So I, I guess I have to own it and say that I've been traumatized by that. And there's so many things that, you know, that we've been traumatized by that you can call up in a moment's notice so it really hasn't gone anywhere so you're constantly working through that interpersonal violence it's it's a constant you know you don't get you don't get to say i'm healed because the very minute you say you're healed you're going to especially as a, a person of color brown black or yellow you um um you're going to encounter it again just when you think it's set like shark like Jaws, just when you think it's safe to come out of the water, just when you think it's safe and we've gotten past that and I've got a good circle of friends and all of these things are then invariably something like that will happen again. Somebody will think it's a joke and
1: yeah. make
0: a, a a racial joke and they yeah. think they're among friends and it's okay.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. We talk a little bit about that in one of the DEI trainings that we created um, about like jokes and how that is used to dismiss people's experiences. You know, oh, well, I was just kidding. Like, why are you Mm -hmm. so upset? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and not understanding that to you it's a joke because it's not your lived experience. Like that is not a joke. And um, I think that's really important for people to understand that. And I think going back to the article as well, um, if you're working with someone, if you're working with a person of color who is experiencing depression, let's say, um, you can't treat that person's depression and help them work through that depression without also understanding that I am
0: sure the racial uh, violence they have experienced has contributed to that depression, right? Right. And because and, he talks about he says that interpersonal violence, he says, which can and I think he should just probably go ahead and say that it does. But you can't use sweeping generalizations in the academic environment, but uh, can lacerate the spirit. You know, I mean, think about what that looks like uh, if your spirit has been lacerated, if there's been an indictment or a charge or something against your very essence of who you are. Yes. Right. I mean, that is that's
1: violence. That's the the effect of violence, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it is, especially when you, when you, you know, it's, it's in its form of rejection and you're not good enough and get back and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and some of those, you know, I forget who it is. Some, some uh, used to, used to sing a song called the first cut is the deepest. I can't remember who that author was, that, that musician was, but um, I think it's important that, you know, the the scars that we get, they never go away. And and it's almost like uh, they're living. I, I think about this sometimes in situations like people say, oh, you're healed. There's your scar, you can see it. But you can take that scab off at any point. And even if it's gone past and it's only left a discoloration on your skin, you always notice it, you always see it. And you can always go back and say, well, this is when I got my arm burned on a poker at a fire. So you can bring that up. At any point. So when he talks about the scarring of the soul, I think that runs so deep that how do you ever. And I guess that's why if somebody were in psychotherapy, they would be working toward that,
1: you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, um, a lot of people think of the mind and the body as being two separate things. Right. So you can have scars on your body. You can have physical healing, but then you can also have mental scars and mental healing. But there is a very deep mind-body connection. And those spiritual lacerations, those punctures to the psyche, they don't just affect your mind. They affect your spirit. They affect your body. They affect your life in really profound ways. Um, And I think that people need to understand that because it, it goes back to kind of the broader understanding of mental health in general but people tend to just kind of write it off and it's like no this is this is deep this is very real
0: you're you're so correct in that carly and i think you know when the author was talking about it and we're borrowing from him to to take it to a larger population than just the youth that he's talking about but when 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 we talk about these kinds of things i think um it it it's how how do we as black brown people or as women in a patriarchal world, all, this is all from the intersectional perspective. How do we navigate through this system? How what do how do I exist with all of these wounds with all of this oppression? How do I how how do I how do I get past it? And so I think what he's saying is you know what looks like sometimes is not successful life for young people. Uh, and I would say for all people, um I- I've been talking recently to a bunch of black women who work in predominantly white environments, and they are just frustrated mm. and and you know, we've been talking about what do we do? how do we share the frustration that we feel this in this racial oppression in this traumatic wound perspective? how do we say that y- y- the way a powerful white woman or a powerful white man treats, um a black woman in the workplace in the environment is it's unbelievable you know because you're not a man and and that's why that's whole intersectional piece you're not a man and you're black and a woman or you identify as a woman and you're black and or brown or yellow and it just doesn't work mm-hmm. yeah you know and 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 it just kind of makes you think um that no matter what you do, how do you navigate through that system? I guess that's what, that's my question to you, Carly, for you to answer on air for everyone. How do you navigate through uh, this system of injustices in our world, but let's just call it a system. How do you navigate through that with, you know, this kind of trauma, any kind of trauma, but in this case, we're talking about racial oppression and that kind of trauma and it's generally internalized. And as you said earlier, people never look at who you are or what you're going through or never thought about what you had to go through to get to where you are. Yeah. I mean, obviously
1: there's not going to be a one simple solution to any of this, but I think first is um, I think therapy is extremely beneficial I know that therapy, psychotherapy, as a profession, has its own issues with white supremacy and, you know, all of that as well, um, patriarchy, white supremacy. But if you can find yourself a really good, you know, race-informed, you know, trauma-informed therapist, I think that that can be really, really helpful um, because they're going to focus on giving people tools to help navigate through their daily lives, right? Yeah. And it will be personalized to your specific experiences, which I think is really important. Um, the other thing that I think is really important, and again, this is something that through the lens of social work, um, I learned to do and a lot of other social workers have learned to do. And that is to not think that every problem that you see within another person is just something that that's unique to them as far as like, oh, well, they're just behaving bad. No, why? Ask those questions. Why is this person displaying this certain kind of behavior? Um, Or if you see a problem, it's usually not the person focused, right? It's usually system focused Mm -hmm. and understanding that as well. So, you know, I think that's really important to kind of broaden your perspective of like, how did we get here? Because you can't go forward if you don't know how you got here in the first place, right? Um, So I think both of those perspectives can really help.
0: I think you're right. I was reading an article last week, and I don't remember who and and it was just talking about you know social identities and systems of oppression. And I can remember one of the things that they talked about was that these systems of oppression, you know that they're individual, that they're institutional, and that they're societal mm-hmm. and it it has a real deep history, especially it's rooted in America as we know it. I, I, I think about um oh, what's his name Ferrari, the one who uh, did the book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he says that, um, this is a short version of what he says, and I don't want to misquote him, but my interpretation of what he says, he just says that, you know, nobody goes unscathed. So both the oppressed and the oppressor are, are involved in this process. And I guess that's why you had sympathizers, you had liberators, you had abolitionists, you had all these kind of people who, how could it not bother, in particular, white I'm talking Southern plantation owners, you know, et cetera. How could it not bother someone's psyche to inflict this, these kinds of atrocities that were inflicted upon black people during the period of enslavement? It it had to bother. And I guess that's why you had some people to say, I'm not in that. I don't believe that. And they had to, uh, even though it was economic and it was capitalist and all that, they had to go away from that because how do you, how do you, how did you, how do you handle these systems individually institutionally societally how do you handle them i mean i think it definitely did
1: break the psyche collective psyche of the people that experienced that 100% because we're still dealing with it now yeah, right yeah but you're yeah, you're right and i think it goes back to like what lies did you have to tell yourself what lies did you have to believe to participate in that system you know how did you have to talk yourself into that system even people with just True hate in their hearts. They still have to talk themselves into that, right? There has to be, where does that come from? Yeah, And, um, you know, there are a lot of different answers to that question. But I think, you know, those psychological wounds are still there 100%.
0: And I don't know if you I can't remember the name, but who was that that, you know, that started to coin that term about collective trauma? And I think part of that comes from that, because the trauma is not just one one sided. There's a book out. I forget what the name of it is, but it's called They Were Her Property, too. I forget who the Mm -hmm. author is, but we're talking about the period of enslavement and they were talking about how. We like to put it all on white men, but white women, they were their property, too. They were the ones who were inheriting the people who were enslaved to be to continue to be enslaved with them. And then they also were the ones who were, um, you know, teaching the children, the, yeah. the social mores, the, the rights, the wrongs, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, yeah. I guess that maybe that kind of comes like with the whole collective trauma is that it's not just one sided, but oppression affects everybody in the process.
1: Um, And I definitely think we should read that book because I think that would be really good to dive into. Um, But 100 percent, it's a collective thing. And we've talked about, you've heard people talk about it coming back from COVID, too. Um, You know, that the pandemic was a collective traumatic experience that we all went through. And so I think it's important to understand that groups of people can be traumatized by one single experience. Um, across race division, across class division, across gender division, right? And the way that people are going to process that is going to be very different based on their lived experiences, based on their identi- way, the way that they identify. And that's a very long and complex thing to like unravel.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think it goes back to, you know, Ferrero, where he says that, you know, this is both the job of the oppressed and the oppressor. To work through that. And I think when we talk about, you know, the fact that we still have such a a uh, a real diverse, a a real chasm that uh, between black and white, in particular in the United States, because of the period of enslavement is because we've not come together and said, this is our problem. We're always pointing fingers. Some people are saying it isn't a problem. Why are you still talking about other people are saying it's your problem because you did it to us. And so we're not coming together at the table from a collective perspective and say within this group both the oppressed and the oppressor need to kind of work this out because we've both been affected. We've both been harmed tremendously by it.
1: Yeah. And I do agree with that. But I also think it is the job of the people who are the oppressors
0: in this situation
1: to do the heavy lifting. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. I agree. I agree. But, but I do, I do think that nobody I know we got to go, but I, I and this is off subject, but I do think that we have not spent enough time with how the period of enslavement has affected the psyche of white dominance.
1: Uh, white yeah, dominance. we've not talked
0: about that at all because some of the things that they still do to try to create those systems and to keep them going, when when the whole world is no longer like that, but they're still doing it. And so we look at those people, we call them extremists, we call them white supremacists, we all that. But the, it's affected them so much that they still want to create and keep a system of inequity.
1: I 100% agree with that. We are coming to the <laughs> close of our time, but we will continue to work from this article. So I highly recommend that audience you go and you you read it too, so that you, know, you can kind of follow along with us. We're gonna talk next week about internalized evaluation, which is a very rich, complex and important topic. And so I'm really happy that we're gonna be able to spend some time on that. Um, But we, as always, appreciate you being with us and we will talk to you next week. All right. Bye, everybody.